No matter where your business is in Canada, connectivity shouldn't be a concern. Whether your business is rural, remote, or urban, reliable, scalable internet is available to you and your business. Explore Business is expanding our network. With our extensive fiber, fixed wireless, and satellite networks, we're able to bring you the connectivity your business deserves, with the ability to grow right where you are. With investments in fiber and 5G technology, Explore Business is your new choice for business internet. Get connected with Explore Business today. Are you ready to clear a new path? Welcome to Clearing a New Path podcast, a space for the underrepresented voices in rural Canada. I'm your host, Shauna Ray. Each episode, we'll speak authentic truth because it's the truth that connects us. We'll examine issues, solutions, and hope outside of the city limits. Clearing a New Path podcast is an invitation to listen and learn along with me, on the road to building a more united, feminist, anti-racist rural Canada. One rooted in diversity and driven by reconciliation. Let's learn together, clearing a new path. clean and resilient growth? And how does it fit into a rural perspective in Canada? And will 2023 be the year it's realized here in rural Canada? This week's episode is the first of what I hope will be many conversations with the folks at Place Centre, which is a new initiative of the Smart Prosperity Institute. My guest is John McNally, the program director for the growth program at PLACE, where he leads a team of researchers and communicators focused on clean growth policy. John has previously worked as an advisor, researcher, and policymaker on a number of issues, including federal climate policies, corporate sustainability initiatives, and advancing clean growth in Canadian resource sectors. We talk specifically about rural Canada, its growth challenges, opportunities, and solutions. And John gives what we're calling some predictions slash suggestions for rural Canada in 2023 and beyond. Can you tell us a bit about Place Centre and the Smart Prosperity Institute? What do you do there? What's your role? So the Smart Prosperity Institute is a national think tank based out of the University of Ottawa. It was started in around 2010, and the original goal of the Institute was very based in the uh, political movement at the time and the way that we talked about climate action back in the late 2000s and early 2010s, which focused a lot on how we think about making the environment and the economy grow together. It was very much the message. We wanted to think about market-based policy approaches, putting prices on pollution, how can we incentivize people to reduce the 
reduce the amount of GHGs that they create to use water more efficiently, all of these big picture issues. As time has advanced, so has the way we talk about climate change. It's become less of a big picture, should we do something question, and much more of a grounded, how are we going to do this? How are we going to meet the climate targets that we have set out? Uh, they've shifted into what I call more of like an operational question. A lot of very real world, practical, pragmatic challenges that we're now trying to think through when we're seriously considering how we can go about meeting our climate targets. That's a shift we've really noticed in the last two or three years. And with that shift, has come a change from this high level, we need to do something, here are policies that can work for the whole country, which are critically important, to zooming in on some of the local challenges that are being encountered in communities across the country that are trying to advance clean growth and climate action. And I'll unpack the, the clean growth term, I think at some point, because it's, it's a fun buzzword and admittedly it's in my job title, but I also get that it is a buzzword. So as we have the opportunity to zoom in on some of these communities, what we're seeing is that the issues that each different community runs into and in actually implementing climate action are very real. They differ community to community and you ultimately need customized solutions based on the regions where we live across the country. So this year, the Smart Prosperity Institute launched a new research initiative called the Place Center. The Place Center is a think tank that's based within Smart Prosperity. And the goal of the Place Center is to do what we call place-based research. So it's taking all of the same issues that we care about uh, in the broader smart prosperity family. We want to make sure that Canada grows its economy while also reducing its GHGs and adapting to a changing climate. We wanna conserve nature. We wanna reduce plastics pollution. We wanna conserve biodiversity in our natural spaces. All of these really important issues that we care about and dropping down into more of a local, regional, municipal level to try and understand what these issues look like and what, uh, what, what success and what, um, what prosperity really looks like in each of these communities. Part of what we understand is that these, the, the solutions we use will have to differ whether you live in Windsor, Nova Scotia or Windsor, Ontario. These are two very different places. The people that live there are different, different skill sets, different industry makeup. There is no one size fits all. So in some ways, the place center is our um, <laughs> maybe a bit late uh, realization and coming to terms with the fact that given that everywhere is different, we need to start thinking creatively about the solutions that we come up with. My job at PLACE is I run a research program that's focused on uh, what I call clean and resilient growth, which is economic growth that can reduce greenhouse gas emissions and help Canada adapt to a changing climate at the exact same time. And we're focused on currently trying to figure out how we can navigate some of these challenges and bottlenecks that communities across the country are running into. And the big one that we're really focused on right now is making sure that Canada has the workforce that it needs to build a lot of these projects and that that workforce has the skills needed to make sure that we can actually realize a lot of these opportunities that, that we see coming up in communities across the country. Wow. Exciting. Fascinating. I have a, like a million questions on after hearing that, but our focus is rural Canada. And I know that that is a huge, broad spectrum. Like you said, every community is different. However, rural is very different from urban. So can you unpack that a little bit and how the approach to looking for solutions is different between rural and urban? I think one of the big things that rural folks, and, and I'm one of them, are frustrated by is that a lot of the solutions that are suggested are not 
focused on people outside of a large urban center. They are focused on people that are in bigger places. So what are your thoughts on that? That's a frustration and a challenge that, that I've heard voiced as well in a, lot of, in a lot of different ways and from folks who work in a lot of different industries. I very much understand the point. The need for us to think about policies that are more grounded in the places where we live and uh, or the, the phrase I like to use is the places where we live, work, and play. Because ultimately, we do more than just go to work and buy groceries in, in, in an ideal world. So for us, I think uh, when we're trying to think through the difference between rural and urban contexts, the first thing that we have to think through is taking some of the concepts that we really care about and thinking through how they might apply in rural Canada. So for us, uh, clean growth, as I mentioned, is that uh, economic growth, which helps us reduce greenhouse gas emissions and adapt to a changing climate. So let's unpack those two things a little bit. If we're thinking a little bit about rural Canada, what are the economic indicators? What are the things, the ways that we should measure progress that ultimately could make a difference in these areas? There are two big ones that jump out, um, which are where are jobs getting created and what are the jobs that are being created? And can we make sure that these regions attract the investment that they need into the industries that they have in these communities and the projects that they're actually very keen to advance? So those are a couple of the, the metrics that help take the whole economic picture and really draw it down into what I call a more manageable problem, um, really making sure we can help accomplish these two things. Now, when it comes to reducing greenhouse gas emissions, um, the footprint from an environmental perspective of rural versus urban is very different. Your highest emitting sectors in an urban area um, are going to come from transportation, um, often heavy industry, uh, he heavy industry in some communities can be a really big driver. Electricity and home heating can be a big one, especially if we're thinking about uh, heating homes in suburban areas that tend to surround cities. There's a lot of natural gas heating in certain provinces that comes from that. In a rural context, it's, it's different. Your largest emitting sectors are going to be agriculture, uh, which is often quite a big one. It's the fifth or sixth largest emitting sector in the country. And there's a lot of emissions associated with making food. It's just part of the process that goes into it. Uh, additionally, transportation is another big emitter within rural areas. And part of the challenge with transportation is that obviously, as much as you might want to say, well, let's just throw more public transportation at the problem. Anyone who's lived in a rural area knows that it's not, it, it's not always all that practical to have buses that are trying to drive community from community. At the end of the day, you do need a car. Uh, and household electricity usage is, is another one of those areas where, where rural Canada actually does tend to have a fair few emissions as well. In part, that's related to where electricity is generated in different provinces as well. Um, so in certain provinces like Saskatchewan and Alberta, there's more of a reliance on fossil fuels that, uh, um, that, that comes from these areas. However, all three of these areas have a lot of potential to advance clean growth projects. There is a ton of cool innovations and investments that are happening in sustainable agriculture and changes to the way we grow food, really exciting opportunities in food manufacturing and processing that's happening in communities like Portage La Prairie. There's a lot of exciting projects that we're seeing for renewable energy that are occurring in more rural communities across the country, like the Annapolis Valley and Nova Scotia and, and all around Cape Breton, as well as a number of in, re, indigenous communities that are leading the way on renewable energy installations up in the Northwest Territories and the Yukon. And there's also a ton of opportunities in the forestry sector. Now, all of the opportunities that I've mentioned are ultimately resource driven, which is related in part to the fact that Canada has a lot of resources that are going to be in demand as the world continues to reduce its emissions. But in part, 
It's also related to the fact that there are a lot of communities that have historically been agriculture communities, mining communities, oil and gas communities, forestry communities, where we're seeing there are a lot of opportunities that new technologies are bringing around that are really jumping to the forefront and have a chance to really help these communities not only reduce their own emissions, but find these new sources of economic growth that can help them attract investment and create jobs as Canada continues to reduce its emissions going forward. We feel ultimately that for rural Canada, this is a good news story, but it's a good news story that we need to ensure we work hard to realize and to take advantage of, because that's the only way we can turn all of this potential into practice. So part of that, I think, is trying to combat resistance. That is kind of the elephant in the room that a lot of people don't talk about when we talk about innovation and we talk about growth is that there is so much resistance in rural Canada because there are legacy families that own large swaths of land and also big mining companies. And it's not in their best interest to move forward in a progressive quote unquote way. And so how do we how do we rationalize moving forward to the folks that are resistant or do we just have to wait until they come around? That is a very good question. I want to pick up on a couple of the examples that you mentioned, which is that there are there are often a lot of large established players in some of these bigger resource sectors who um, we may intuitively think are sort of standing in the way of helping us realize some of the climate action or the clean growth potential that we really want to see. And what we've found is that there are definitely some situations where, yes, that happens to be the case, but there are lots of others where it's not. For a lot of major companies or players in the space, because they happen to have such large or expansive operations, part of what they understand is that these, these clean economy investments, these clean growth investments, they actually can not only give them a competitive edge over some of the other companies that they work with that happen to be in other countries or in other regions, but they can also help them save money in some cases. And the other piece is that they can help them innovate around new processes and ideas that allow them to bring forward some new concepts that come up with what I like to call a new way of doing things. One of the examples that comes into my head is there are some companies who happen to work in the agriculture space out in Manitoba and Saskatchewan that are right now doing some really leading investments and in work on some of the sustainable agriculture side. And they're really pushing forward the use of some exciting new technologies that help them better identify and calculate, you know, where are greenhouse gas emissions coming from in the landscape? What are uh, ways that we can better optimize the where we put nitrogen fertilizer on some of our fields? How can we ensure that we are really making the most of the crop yields that we have while minimizing and reducing our GHGs? One of the big reasons that they have the ability to do this is that they ultimately have resources and it's in their interest to try and find ways to lower costs while at the same time reducing GHGs in this space. There are other communities and spaces where I agree industries could industries might be better positioned working a little more with community members to help identify where the community is interested in advancing some of these opportunities. And that's ultimately part of the reason we are excited about the work we do at PLACE is that part of place-based work in our eyes is ensuring that all of the, uh, all the stakeholders, all the members of the community, whether they happen to be business owners, uh, individuals who just, individuals who vote, whether they happen to be uh, members of families or just like passionate champions for the community who are really interested in uh, trying to figure out what the future looks like 
for their town, for their region, for their place where they happen to have lived for decades and their family's been there for an extensive period of time. Part of what we know is that right now, one of the challenges we have is that folks aren't always talking to each other to help identify what those solutions could look like and how everyone could be brought in the room to come up with solutions that do work a little better based off a common vision. So in our eyes, I think that's that's one of the big paths forward is making sure that there's better communication between everyone who happens to be in the space, different levels of government, industry players, civil society folks, community champions, to help come up with the solutions and ensure we can advance them in a way that works for everyone. I think that that is idealistic and awesome. Like, I mean, I, I think ideally that's what, what we want to happen. We want to get everybody into a room. We want to have a conversation, but that conversation is going to be uncomfortable. There's going to be some people that have a louder voice, some people that have more privilege, some people that have more agency. They're higher up in the community. Maybe they own a big stake. Maybe their company is really prosperous. Maybe their family has deep roots in the politics of the region. Or, you know, there's so many things at stake. And, and I believe you, I think those uncomfortable conversations have to happen. We have to bring people in. I think it's convincing people that they need to be comfortable being uncomfortable to have those kind of conversations and not walk away from them, not go to them or not go to the meeting because they're digging in their heels and they don't want to hear any, any other solutions. One of the big approaches that we found that's more effective in this case is give everyone a common problem to solve. It's less about trying to immediately come up with what the vision for the future could look like because as anyone who's ever been to any town council meeting or town hall knows, a lot of folks have a lot of opinions and they're very strong on kind of what the future of their community should be. So for us, part of what we recognize is that if you want to if you want to come up with a new way of doing things that breaks down some of these barriers and tries to think things through, we need to have a new a new way of engagement. And one of the approaches that we really like is give folks a common problem to solve, something that everyone in the room acknowledges is a big issue and that we ultimately have to, to think about how, how we're going to move past. So one of the examples I'll give is in Manitoba, one of the big barriers that we've encountered in trying, uh, that this, the sector rather is encountering for growing this food processing and food manufacturing space in Manitoba is that there is right now issues around municipal water hookups and municipal water processing. And that's a very real world challenge that fits nicely under the banner of rural Canada infrastructure challenges, right? If you want to build things in rural Canada, there often may not be some of the infrastructure that you do have in urban areas, which means that you need a little more investment to help drive solutions into this. Folks need to work together to help overcome some of these, uh, some of these barriers and some of these challenges. So in the case of Manitoba, what we're seeing is that there is a lot of interest and a lot of investment in investing in food processing and manufacturing for a lot of the alternative and plant proteins that we're seeing really grow in markets across the, across the world and across the country. There are some big brand names that have popped up, your Beyond Meats, your Impossible Foods, all of these bigger brand names. A lot of those products, uh, the companies that make them, are interested in investing in Canada and creating jobs in rural Canada in the prairies that can really help drive this. Now, the government has put a lot of support behind this, and there's a lot of communities like Portage La Prairie that are seeing a lot of new investment go in. But there are these very real challenges that come with trying to manage this growth that folks are having to come together and think through how exactly they're going to navigate. One of the big ones is that oftentimes communities 
that are looking to attract investment may not have sufficient municipal water hookups to ensure that they can actually bring food manufacturers into the community because manufacturing and processing food is pretty water intensive as a process. And so that immediately is a challenge where in order to be able to create the jobs that the company wants to be able to bring there, we have to make all the infrastructure investments. And companies are working with governments who are working with community members to try and figure out, okay, well, where can this facility go? Who should be paying for some of these respective pieces? And we're all having to come try to work together to help figure out what this might look like. Additionally, there's a lot of hookups for wastewater treatment and nutrient removal that are needed in these food processing and manufacturing facilities to ensure that the water that's coming in is at the quality needed to make all of the necessary food products in Manitoba. And again, that isn't always at the level needed in these communities where companies are coming in and saying, we really want to invest. We really want to be able to create jobs and pour investment into these communities. So those are the kinds of challenges where we are seeing when there are common problems that need to be solved. Folks are coming together, they're having the conversations that are needed, and oftentimes it's more than just who's going to pay for this municipal water hookup. There end up being a lot of conversations around, well, what's the future of this community and how does the community want to see itself? Where do we want these jobs to be created? And that prompts a lot of these bigger picture discussions and maybe equally as important, it gets folks used to talking to each other. And it gets folks used to thinking about, well, how can we try and figure out how to support change and benefit the community as a whole that hopefully sets us up to continue that dialogue into other spaces? I think those are some great points. And I think part of your role, as you described it, is getting more jobs, creating more jobs in spaces in Canada. And, and specifically, we're talking about rural Canada. As you were explaining about the manufacturing piece, also part of the issue is. Well, the federal government has really lofty immigration targets to spread immigration into rural Canada. However, many of the communities don't have cultural infrastructure in place to make people outside of Canada coming in welcome. So they don't have access to their own cultural food. They have to drive to a larger urban center. There's not affordable housing. There's a lot of those issues. So affordable housing and immigration are two of the biggest, I would say, things that I hear about in rural Canada as it relates to the economy, as it relates to jobs. So what are some of the solutions that you're hearing or suggesting as it relates to those things? That's a really good point. Just to, to kind of further your point on how these two trends can actually intersect at times and they can each make each other a little more complicated to solve. One of the big examples of this that we're seeing in recent years is in southwestern Ontario, where uh, the house prices in Toronto have gotten unaffordable is maybe a, a, an understated way of putting it to an extent where the city doesn't really have enough housing. So folks who would otherwise want to live in Toronto and work there are continuously having to move further and further out and are now commuting in from longer distances. What's happening is that that means that folks who were originally in communities that have now become commuter towns for Toronto, I'm thinking of Guelph, Kitchener, Waterloo. We hear of folks who work in Toronto who commute in from Chatham, Kent every day, which is not a small drive. Uh, folks are now having to move increasingly outwards. And so you're having a lot of rural communities like Waylands Corners or Ingersoll, Ontario, that are now having to think through two sets of challenges. One is around still managing some of the demographic shifts that came from manufacturing jobs moving 
out of the province back in the 90s and 2000s. We started first seeing some of these changes and they're now dealing with some of these bigger demographic questions as well, while they're simultaneously seeing housing in their community really starting to climb upwards. Uh, one stat that comes from an analysis that, uh, that my colleague Mike Moffat did was that it is now more expensive to buy a house in Ingersoll than it is a condo in Tokyo, <laughs> if you want to take a minute to absorb that. And part of what that means is that uh, rural communities in southwestern Ontario are trying to figure out how to solve both of these challenges at the same time. And what they're recognizing is that even if they go out and build a ton more housing and build things up to the targets that are needed and are set out in some of the pr provincial policies, there are challenges that come with the fact that it doesn't a lot of the folks who may come to the community would be people who are net, who are moving from communities that have also become more unaffordable. So they're trying to figure out how to navigate both these challenges at the same time. In terms of which solutions that we have, um, I wish that I had a magic ball to be able to tell you exactly what would work and exactly how it would go. Part of what we work through and part of what we're trying to better understand is two, is two or three separate sets of solutions at the same time. Recognizing that this is happening because we've got problems that are happening at the same time, we want to understand that maybe we'll need multiple solutions that we can implement at once and they'll all contribute to starting, solving part of the challenge. One is that uh, we do ultimately need to ensure that we build more housing in a lot of communities where housing is becoming more unaffordable, recognizing that these are often communities that haven't been experiencing growth, the population growth at the levels we're seeing in a long time. But part of the nature of housing markets in some larger urban centers is that folks are moving out to these other areas. Um, that is not a net bad. I want to stress that. When you get more residents, it increases the tax base. You bring people in. Oftentimes, these people are younger. They may bring in young families. There's, there's, lots, uh, there's lots of good things that come with having young folks entering a community, spending money locally, and really helping bolster a tax base. That can be really, really good for rural communities. But as you stressed, there are also some challenges that come with uh, new families showing up in a community that maybe has historically been aging, and those will need to be navigated as well. So another part of the solution that we ultimately recommend is starting to think through some of the skills, training, and education portions for some of the projects that happen to be in rural communities that we're seeing. And just to continue on our Southwestern Ontario example, I'll talk a little bit about zero emissions vehicle manufacturing as being the big one in Southwestern Ontario that's really driving a lot of interest right now. Part of what we need to ensure is that folks who happen to live in these communities still have access to the training and education needed to be able to take and fill these jobs to ensure that they don't just become uh, Zoom towns for Toronto. And part of that means really thinking through are the local colleges prepared uh, and do they have the programs needed to fill the roles in a lot of these communities where we're having this challenge where local business owners and entrepreneurs are telling us that they can't find the talent they need to be able to hire people in these local jobs. We've got a lot of folks who happen to be moving to this community and we need to ensure that we've got programs in place so that if they're interested in staying, if they're interested in filling these roles, we have the programs needed so that folks can actually really sort of take take these jobs and, and ultimately you can get more benefits that sort of accrue to these rural regions. As you said, that may be a bit idealistic, but ultimately part of what we recognize is that when we're encountering multiple problems at the same time, we need multiple solutions. And sometimes the solutions will also intersect in ways that make the parts, um, that make the whole rather greater than the parts that are being run into. Um, because in this case, what you have when you implement a lot of these solutions is communities that are younger, they're really drawing in families, they have a skilled workforce, 
that in turn can help attract new businesses and the communities thereby become more attractive and they sort of go through this revitalization process. I think some of the barriers can be the politicization of clean, even just the word clean growth, the words put together, clean growth. I think that if there is a local Facebook group in you know, rural Manitoba, a rural BC, rural Ontario, there's going to be a few loud voices that say, we don't want people here. And it's because of a certain party or a certain platform, if you will, there's a lot of resistance from political leaders. So how do you, I guess, factor that into solutions and changing people's perception of the benefits rather than them listening to the propaganda. One thing that I might want to add to that is that I think on, on a provincial level, part of what we're seeing is that in the last couple of years, certainly, there has been a shift towards a lot more acceptance, even if it's not super explicit with a megaphone out here talking about why everything is great, um, level excitement for the things that we would consider to be clean growth or clean jobs. Uh, in Ontario, in the last big provincial budget, one of the headline pieces that the provincial government really talked about was growing the zero emissions vehicle and critical mineral sector up front. So what that meant is they were, they were talking the, in the budget, the provincial government was talking about how there were multiple communities in different regions across the province that were set to really experience the job creation benefits and the investment that come from drawing in a lot of this, uh, from drawing in a lot of these projects from areas in Northern Ontario that would see benefits from a lot of the mining operations that could start from mining more critical minerals in the province to, like I stated, a lot of the communities in Southwestern Ontario uh, and, and Southern Ontario that would really benefit from some of the major zero emissions vehicle investments that the province is, is making and is really keen to make. I don't think it's a coincidence that every time a new zero emissions vehicle manufacturing plant or an auto parts plant in some of these spaces opens, Someone from the provincial government is there, often the premier with scissors and a big smile, um, making sure that they can cut uh, uh, cut the red tape that they've managed to put across uh, that they managed to put across there for the photo op. There actually is a lot of agreement across the country from a number of provinces that we're seeing on some of the specific opportunities that are coming up, and in part, we think that's related to they are creating jobs and they're attracting investment at scale, and so uh, governments that provincial governments rather, that might have some rhetoric around not necessarily being super friendly to climate action and wanting to reduce GHGs. We're actually seeing a lot of focus and investment on industries that we would consider to be clean growth, including a number of the ones I've already mentioned on this podcast, where conservative governments have full strategies developed to how they can support the growth of the sector. They're really focused on ensuring that, that the workforce grows at the pace needed so that Canada and, and ultimately regions across the country can sort of draw in this investment. And we're seeing it's actually one of the rare areas of consensus. And part of the reason for that seems to be that everyone recognizes this is a really big opportunity for communities across the country to, to draw in more capital. In Ontario, we have heard a lot of, I, I would say, a lot of uh, chatter <laughs> Uh, about some recent legislation from our provincial government saying, uh, basically giving mayors kind of superpowers and, you know, as it relates to development and growth. 
Can you unpack that as far as it relates to what you're doing, the Institute and, and your project? To clarify, um, the provincial government has passed a couple different legislative bills in the last little while. One was focused on um, granting, I think, what's, what has been referred to in the media as strong mayor powers, uh, which effectively give mayors an ability to take on some responsibilities and, and pass certain things that they didn't previously have the uh, they didn't previously have the authority to do. Another bill that was passed is um, what has been, uh, I think, referred to as the Build More Housing Act. I may have the name incorrect. My apologies. Uh, it's, it's often referred to as Bill 23. And the objective of that was that it set forward a series of municipal housing targets, as well as a number of policies that aim to stimulate the growth and development of more housing in the province of Ontario. We at Smart Prosperity and the Place Center uh, are big fans of building more housing. I want to stress that. We are in favor of uh, building more housing. We think it's a critical part of addressing the supply challenge. However, a big part of what we recognize is that housing affordability and the housing crisis is not the only issue Canada faces. At the same time as we're trying to build more housing, we want to ensure that we meet our climate targets. We have to be prepared to adapt to a changing climate and all of the adverse weather impacts that that's going to bring. We want to ensure that our, our communities and our societies become more equitable and more inclusive. And we want to ensure that we also preserve green space and that we our communities remain great places to live for, for the generations to come. So part of the work that we do at Place Center is in trying to understand the ways in which we can develop these communities, the ways in which these uh, these goals of building more housing and really making sure that folks have affordable places to live can be advanced by thinking about what it means for the whole community. How can the whole community become uh, more livable and sustainable? How can we ensure that communities are accessible for families who are looking to move in there? Uh, and the stat that I like to use is that the demographic and the age that is leaving Toronto most is zero to four because the demographic that is leaving most is families with young kids. And so what that means is that you're seeing a lot of folks come out of Toronto who are young families because they can't afford to stay or live in the city. So a big part of this is how can we ensure uh, the, the communities, the places we build housing across the country are accessible to young families uh, and are livable for folks who, who are growing older. Canada's population is aging on average and rural Canada is, is on average um, older than both urban and suburban Canada. So how do we ensure that uh, folks who are getting a little bit older, either nearing retirement age or already retired, live in communities that have some of the basic supports that they need so that they can maintain a relatively high quality of life and maintain their independence? Those are ultimately a lot of the factors that are important to us, as well as ensuring the way that we develop a lot of this new housing can align with our climate targets and can ensure that we conserve the nature that ultimately is part of what makes Canada great. Uh, and, and makes it a great place to live. I'm going to bring this up. I was debating whether to or not, but one of the big things that I think that we have to address, and you've, you've mentioned it, you've alluded to it, this is part of your mandate, part of your mission, is systemic racism and white supremacy. And we know that it exists far more, I would say, obviously or externally in rural communities than perhaps in urban communities. And so that is something that we need to name, I think. And I think that we all need to look inward at the uh, biases that we might have 
and then come to the table with solutions and naming those things that, you know, I don't have all the answers. I, I'm not like you. I have privilege. I've been, you know, I, I've benefited from that my entire life. So how can we help build a community that's more welcoming to all of you? Um, I think those, that's what I mean by uncomfortable conversations. I think those need to happen because again, it's something that is so prevalent and, and we want to just kind of brush it under the carpet. We just, we don't want to talk about that, right? Like rural Canada, you know, it, it, but it is something that we need to, to face and, and economically it will cripple us if we don't. I believe that. What do you think? I, I definitely hear where you're coming from. And I agree with the urgency and the imperative. It is something that needs to be addressed. It's something that we see come up in a lot of different scenarios and um, and, and in a lot of different parts of our lives. Um, and I agree as someone who is very privileged, grew up in a privileged background. It's, uh, it's something that I've been learning uh, a lot more about in recent years. Perhaps, uh, again, it's, it's one of those experiences that never it never stops, nor should it ever, as, as we sort of aim to educate ourselves. I think the best, the best way that I can talk about how it might apply to our work and the ways that I can see a, a constructive path moving forward comes back a little bit to that idea of give folks a common problem to solve. And one of the major, one of the major things that I always like to think about in this case, and I'll relate it back to some of the skills and workforce work that we do is when we want to think about making sure that the opportunities that are created in the clean economy are accessible to everyone who might want them, then we have to sit down and think seriously about what barriers might be holding folks back from applying to or taking or working in a number of these opportunities that exist today. And sometimes these are uh, remnants of a period when the industry just happened to be male-dominated uh, and oftentimes still is. But because of that, there are practices or norms that got set in place that now upon reflection, we can see them in a little bit of a, a different light, having learned more, uh, are important to be able to talk about more and understand. Um, I was actually listening to uh, your podcast the other day, and I was listening to the one you were talking about with women in the skilled trades. Uh, and I apologize for not remembering the name of the individual you had on who was talking about the challenges that come with being a woman on a commercial fishing boat. But a number of them were just very practical challenges around the fact that there was a bathroom whose door didn't fully close. And how are you supposed to get any privacy? And these are just very real world challenges that people are bringing up as barriers to them being able to participate fully, enthusiastically, meaningfully within a number of the industries that we think are set to grow in the clean economy. And ultimately, identifying these barriers is a really important thing for us to do to ensure that we can move forward with an economy that is more inclusive and is able to tackle some of these bigger systemic issues um, that, that you mentioned and, and that we ultimately think are critically important to making Canada more inclusive. Um, one of the phrases I once heard that I quite like is, the economy can be clean, but if none of these systemic challenges or the systemic inequities change, then it's only going to be clean for some of us. And it's important that we can kind of continue to move in a, in a positive direction and make some social progress. And on that note, how about some predictions and or perhaps suggestions for 2023? How do you think rural Canada is going to fare? Or what are your, I guess, lofty pie in the sky dreams or hopes for rural Canada? I like this question. I 
Unfortunately, don't have a crystal ball, so you are going to have to settle for my opinion. I do think that this decade will be a decisive one for, for rural Canada and for Canada and for ultimately a lot of the world. And the way that rural Canada experiences that is obviously going to be a little different, but it, a lot of it is the same major challenges that a lot of the world is going through. There are a lot of industries whose futures are a little uncertain right now, and there are other industries that are set to experience this massive, enormous growth. And we're unsure whether we have the workers to be able to fill these roles and whether people who work in industries that might not be growing very much in the coming years have the supports they need to take new jobs so they can continue to feed their families. Um, it'll be a big, big decade for demographic change. And 2023 is going to be part of that. We'll, we'll, we'll see the way that that comes forward. One of the statistics that I heard recently is by 2030, Almost everyone who is a baby boomer will have reached the age where they technically should be out of the workforce. That's a huge change in Canada, especially for a number of rural industries and for a number of companies in rural spaces where there are a lot of conversations being had these days about folks who've owned stores for decades who are now reaching the point of retirement and may not have anyone to be able to sort of hand this store off to. That rural story is one that we're seeing play out all over the world, but it's really being felt in rural communities where there, there may only be one or two major stores in, uh, in, in the community to support this. I do think that these are very navigable challenges. And I say that because I'm, I'm not pretending they don't exist, but I also think there's a lot of opportunity in front of us. And ultimately, one thing that rural Canada is very good at is recognizing that hard work, rolling up one's sleeves and applying elbow grease to help make the world a better place and seize these opportunities means that we can actually do really hard things. And this will be a challenge to sort of build a lot of these industries. We're talking about a fair bit of change that looks set to occur, but the skill sets, the perspectives and a lot of the uh, wonderful components of the identities that make up folks in rural communities across the country really do have an ability to enrich our clean economy and really make this happen and ultimately create a, a vision for what success looks like in these communities across the country. Like I said, it, it, it will differ. And my hope is that 2023 is a year where we start to see these conversations change a little more from being ones that are set with skepticism to being ones that are set with a little more hope and starting to think a little bit more about how we can make this thing happen. I like that. Rural communities are champions of community. They certainly are. They come together. Mm -hmm. And you're right, they're resilient and they are community driven. And changing perceptions may be slow, but I think there are a lot more forward thinking people in rural Canada than there are people trying to hold things back. I believe that. And I believe that innovation will, will win. I'm very hopeful for that. So any last words, anything else you'd like to add? Um, the only thing I'll add to that last point you made is that of the folks I know who, who worked in um, municipal politics in rural areas and who work in economic development in regions across the country, they are some of the most creative, pragmatic, and practical human beings I know with no shortage of common sense in part because of the challenge you just mentioned, which is that the constraint is the mother of all innovation. If we don't have limits, then why would we need to be creative and work towards things? And that's something that we see a lot in rural communities. And I, I really do think that it is that, um, that spirit and that drive that is really going to help make Canada's clean economy happen. 
I think a lot of people are afraid to fall on their face, but that is actually the beauty of innovation and is necessary for innovation is risk and failure. So you can't actually measure anything if you're always going forward. You have to fail sometimes, right? I like that. That's a, that's a good motto. Thank you so much, John. Very informative and, and we'll check in on you. Happy 2023. Thanks. You too, Sean. Want to keep the conversation going? Subscribe to the Clearing a New Path newsletter. Drop me an email, follow the podcast on social media, and or you can leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Clearing a New Path podcast artwork is supported by the graphic design of Katie Wilhelm, and the music branding is by The Hankering Studio. The podcast is produced by Radar Media in Thames Centre, Ontario. It is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga or neutral peoples who once used this land as their traditional beaver hunting grounds. The First Nations communities closest to the studio are Chippewa of the Thames First Nation, Oneida Nation of the Thames, Muncie, Delaware First Nation, and the Chippewas of Kettle and Stony Point. I will speak to many more people across Turtle Island this season, and as a settler here, I'm committed to deepening understanding of colonialism, the TRC's calls to action, and to reframing responsibilities to land and community. I am grateful to Mother Earth and Creator for the opportunity for love and connection, and to the spirits of the elders and the medicine people who still walk the earth. Until next time, 